Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Berlin, prenatal and family chiropractor, and I'm here with our co-host, Maria Bulin. Maria is a birth and postpartum doula, and she is a blogger at avecmaria.com. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. Today, we're going to explore the heated and often polarizing topic of childhood vaccination. Maria, you have two small children, and you're constantly in groups of children and mothers. Uh, What do you hear on the street? What are people talking about vaccines? Well, I live in Venice, and currently people aren't talking about very much else <laughs> in the mama groups. And But I'm usually in the more hippie doula and midwife community, so and it's a hot-button topic. So I, I hear about it all the time. Do you hear from people on both sides of the debate, or are you mostly... I do, and I have a pretty moderate pediatrician. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I do hear some people that are pro-mandate, but for the most part, I would say about 75% of the people that I talk to are, are not pro-people being forced to have, make, have their children have vaccines in order to go to school. Right. So, the, But that's a big distinction against being not in favor of a mandate, but maybe they're not against vaccination, or are they also the same families that, that prefer to not vaccinate or to it's limit an, their vaccines? It's a mix. That's a good question. But at the same time, I've I, do have many friends who have done some vaccines, but not all, and, and have chosen to elongate the schedule. So I would say that's the bulk of, of the people that I talk to. And uh, But I do have a handful of friends that have chosen not to vaccinate at all. And, and I would say this community in Los Angeles does lean uh, in that direction to vaccinating less often and sometimes not at all. Certainly in your holistic circles. Yes. I, uh, as a as a prenatal chiropractor, moms are always asking me, you know, they're concerned, what do we do when the baby comes? Because there's so much noise about the debate right now. And um, mostly the moms that I talk to are somewhere in the middle. They're not super like, you must have every vaccine today. And they're not super anti-vaccine. They're mostly, I think, hungry for information. And uh, it seems that it's not easy to get level-headed information. So what we want to try to do today is have a conversation about what are vaccines, how do they work, what are the vaccines that we routinely uh, administer and why, and then sort of get into the the arguments that, that stem from there or the conversations and debates that stem from there. We are very blessed and lucky to have two practicing pediatricians with us today. Uh, we have Dr. Carly Wilbur. She's a mother of five and practices pediatric and adolescent medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. And she's a strong supporter of preventative care. She's an associate professor at Case Medical School and helps train residents at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elliot. And we also have Dr. Jay Gordon, who, while completing a residency at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, took a year to serve as Senior Fellow in Pediatric Nutrition at Sloan Kettering Institute of New York City. In addition to treating patients, Dr. Gordon has written several books, including the mistitled recent release, Preventing Autism, What You Can Do to Protect your children before and after birth. He co-authored Mayim's Vegan Table with Mayim Bialik and wrote the forward to Alicia Silverstone's Kind Mama. Dr. Gordon writes a regular column for Fit Pregnancy Magazine, speaks regularly on topics of pediatric and raising healthy children, and plays soccer four days a week while practicing pediatrics seven days a week. 
Welcome to the podcast. So what I love is that both of you are actively pre- uh, practicing pediatrics, and I'm sure you address the vaccine questions daily in your practice. And uh, I would love to have this conversation to get a deeper insight into childhood vaccinations. As a disclaimer, before we move forward, I want to specify that we're just talking today about data that pertain to the United States primarily. Uh, other countries vary widely in the prevalence of the diseases that we're going to talk about and their approaches to vaccination, and also that our discussion of vaccines should not be taken in any way as medical advice. Any decisions that you make pertaining to vaccination should be made after consulting with your pediatric care provider. So if we can start with a little bit of a history of vaccines, this is uh, something that I pulled off of Google, so it must be true. If you could... um, I'll just read through it, and uh, if you can weigh in if if you disagree or agree, but it's sort of a a history of how vaccines got started. There's evidence that the Chinese employed smallpox inoculation as early as a thousand years ago. Modern vaccination began in 1796 with Edward Jenner's use of cowpox material to create immunity to smallpox, which quickly made the practice widespread. Louis Pasteur's 1885 rabies vaccine was the next major milestone, and then antitoxins and vaccines against diphtheria, tetanus, anthrax, cholera, plague, typhoid, and tuberculosis were developed through the 1930s. By 1950s, new methods for growing viruses in the lab led to rapid discoveries, including the creation of vaccines for polio and other common childhood diseases such as measles, mumps, and rubella. In 1980s, children got 23 doses of seven vaccines. Today, we typically give 69 doses of 16 vaccines for children by first grade. Sound about accurate? Your numbers sound right. Seems right. Um, Our audience can, number one, check on Google to make sure I'm right. But also, um, in addition to Google, if you look at informedpregnancy.com, we we are going to have all of the show notes and every reference that we mention will be linked to its original source. Um, so if we can talk a little bit about how the vaccines work, what is a vaccine and, uh, and how does it work? Dr. J, maybe you can start us off. A vaccine uh, fools the immune system into believing it's been exposed to a certain disease, either through killed bacterial uh, fragments or uh, live or attenuated, almost killed viral fragments, and the immune system responds with antibodies. Very simply, and the uh, the body, without being exposed to the disease, the immune system creates a protective level of antibodies against these diseases. Okay, how does that correlate to how your body naturally fights off a disease? You get all the benefit of the immunity. Your body having uh, the experience with the weakened form of the germ being inoculated, uh, and then you don't actually have to suffer the symptoms of the illness. So normally I would be exposed to a virus or a bacteria uh, through various means, through air or through contact, depending on which one. Then my body would recognize that as foreign and my body would naturally make antibodies to it. But, but you're saying it would make me sick. More so than just foreign, dangerous. There are lots of foreign things that the body is exposed to that it doesn't create antibodies against because it doesn't register to the immune system as being a threat. So if, if, if it doesn't register as a threat, I won't fight it off? You can still, you'll still produce antibodies against certain things, but if it doesn't register, it, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't register as a threat, there's a, a, a different type of response. And vaccines were invented when there was a, a very clear risk-benefit analysis. I mean, the uh, smallpox, for instance, 
as you mentioned. I mean, the disease was just, you know, I don't remember the, the case fatality rate, but it was incredibly high. Uh, polio, you know, a disease that occurred so widespread that it, it threatened whole countries in the 40s, 50s, and so on. Uh, and there was a clear, a clear benefit to whatever risk was involved in, in vaccination, as there is with any medical intervention. There's always a, a risk. But there was no question at the time about smallpox or polio. So, Actually, that's not true. As, as you may know, smallpox was questioned like crazy. There were, there were anti-vaccinationists yes. when the smallpox vaccine was invented. Oh, interesting. What was their argument? That the vaccine was really dangerous. It was not, it was not a purified vaccine. I mean, they, 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 they scratched the daylights out of your arm and, and put in live cowpox. And uh, it, it created a lot of immunity. It also, it also it killed some people. I recall there was, uh, with polio, it seemed to be a similar incident where in the early days of polio vaccine, uh, we used to use a live virus and that children, in fact, got sick from the polio vaccine. They actually contracted polio from the vaccine. Rarely, but yes. And I think part of the tenet of first do no harm led to the development of the second polio vaccine that came out, which is the shot versus the oral vaccine. So the oral vaccine is live? The oral vaccine is the live vaccine. And in about one to two out of a million cases, it would revert back to an active form of polio and a previously healthy child through inoculation would get polio. Not saying how severe it was, but that doesn't sync with first do no harm. Sure. So the the killed polio vaccine is the injected one, and that's the one that we currently use. They no longer make the oral polio vaccine in the United States. And in a, an ironic turn of events, now that polio is down to almost zero, I mean, in the year 2015, in the first seven months, there have been 33 cases of polio on the planet. Uh, we now have more paralysis in third world countries caused by the live vaccine. The live vaccine is extremely effective. One of the best vaccines ever invented. Extremely effective, travels well. You can thaw it and refreeze it. It can travel to small villages in Africa, Asia. But we are now down to zero cases of polio in Africa in 2015. And more kids are experiencing uh, vaccine-related paralysis than polio. So now we're going to have to go from a vaccine that costs almost nothing and is very effective, uh, no matter where you take it, to the killed vaccine, to the much more expensive second polio vaccine, the uh, the Salk vaccine, which is less less effective. It's still it's 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 probably almost as effective. But the oral polio vaccine, the 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 live polio vaccine, which we all, which some of us remember as being on sugar cubes and tasting good, um, created immunity so effectively that it. Th- there are many people who say you only needed one dose of that vaccine and you were immune for life. And again, it, it could be thawed and refrozen and traveled without, uh, tra- it just, it traveled well. well. Didn't it also contribute to herd immunity because there was live virus it shed. being shed? It yeah. shed it and, and, to the, and, you know, which was the danger that, that you mentioned. I mean, a, 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 an immunocompromised grandmother changing a diaper. And it, it, this was an incredibly rare event. And there are a lot of people who were not thrilled with the loss of the oral polio vaccine in America because it was so affected. It was so well accepted because it wasn't a shot. But, you know, for statistical reasons, it's gone now from the United States and I think all other countries in the, 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 the developed world and in the developing nations. 
we still are using that oral polio, vac- the oral polio vaccine, and we're going to have to switch. So if I could just recap on how these work, naturally, if you're exposed to this uh, virus or bacteria, which would be the antigen, you would yourself make antibodies to it that recognize it, that attach to it, and then your body would be able to go and destroy that complex, and that's how we fight off uh, these diseases. But with the vaccine, you inject something similar, either a live or, or killed version of the same, of the same strain of virus or bacteria. And then that way you can continue to make that arsenal and fight it off and be prepared to fight it off. Should you be exposed again, uh, without suffering the, the consequences of actually having the disease. Correct. Does that seem right? Yes. For the most part. Where, where, where did I go off? Well, some, sometimes, the, the, just the, the, speaking to the, the issue of side effects of vaccines, I mean, after a chicken pox vaccine, a, a very small number of kids get what looks like a mild case of chicken pox. Uh, after a measles vaccine, the same thing can occur. Okay, so you're just taking issue with the fact that it's not without any symptom and or the possibility of getting sick at all, but it's um, but you're you're typically not going to get the full blown uh, illness that you would have had if you were exposed to the virus naturally. I agree. Okay, great. Um, if we can move on from there to uh, to the current vaccine schedule, uh, the one that's the U.S. schedule that's endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the CDC, and the American Academy of Family Physicians. I'd love to just go down the list and talk about what each of these diseases would look like if we were to get it or our children were to get it, um, the nature of the disease itself, and uh, also speak a little bit to the con- the current incidence of, of these diseases, and then also talk about the vaccine for that particular disease and how it works and um, any, any potential issues with those uh, vaccines. So if we can start with hepatitis B. Uh, what is hepatitis B and how would you get it? I think hepatitis B is where, is is that where the vaccine recommendations begin? In the nursery, correct. The nursery, so, so most healthy babies will receive a hepatitis B vaccine in the nursery before they even go home in the first couple of days of life. Hepatitis B is a very highly debated vaccine for people who choose not to vaccinate or what Maria was saying earlier um, in terms of people choosing some vaccines and not others. Hepatitis B is one of those vaccines that people feel because the risk to infants is so small, why are we vaccinating infants at all? Well, let's back up uh, a little bit before that. How do you get hepatitis B? Typically, it's through intimate contact with um, bodily fluids. So IV drug abusers who share needles or um, intimate contact, like sexual contact. But there is a higher than, I think, recognized rate of household contacts and vertical transmission up to 35% of cases for babies who are born into a household or certainly a mother who carries hepatitis B. Okay. Hepatitis B, can, as, as you were saying, hepatitis B is transmitted horizontally through sex and drugs. Okay, it's that's that's pretty much exclusively it sharing needles and so on. It used to be before the blood supply was secure in certain parts of the world, you could get hepatitis B from a transfusion. Hepatitis B is transmitted vertically. I'm I'm motioning with my hand for those of us who are watching on the radio. Up and down. It's hep, it's it's transmitted from a, a mother who has hepatitis B to a baby. Um, there are very few mothers in our practices who don't know that they have hepatitis B. There are people who don't who don't get good prenatal care. Um, hepatitis B is, is a, 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 one of the, the hepatitides 
There's A, B, C. There's also also Delta and Gamma. But it's of the three best known, hepatitis A, B, and C, hepatitis B can be a permanent disease. It can lead to liver damage, liver failure, and cancer, liver cancer, in an incredibly small percentage of people, but it can happen. We attempted a campaign in the mid-'80s to vaccinate high-risk people, all intravenous drug users and promiscuous heterosexuals and homosexuals, yeah, please and come in. They didn't, they didn't come in. No. They didn't come in. No, so the thought that, so what happened in They're the late busy. 80s... We promised some other things as well. Exactly. <laughs> a, a candy bar. But we, but <laughs> So we decided, who do we have? We have babies. And as a public health measure, there's no question that it's been successful. There's less hepatitis B because of that vaccine. But as as Carly was saying, for each individual parent, when they say, what is the benefit to my baby? And the answer is is zero at that time. The, in my opinion, the answer is zero. Because we're going to track you. We're going to give you a hepatitis B vaccine as you get older. We can discuss this with your 9 or 10 or 11-year-old son or daughter, where the risks are, what you are protected from and what you are not protected from. Um, the public health benefits are unquestionable. And that we continue doing that. But each individual parent questions me and questions you, and they say, what is the benefit to my baby? And we have to tell you, we have to be honest with them and say, there's, there's no benefit. I mean, you, to postulate the idea that somewhere at preschool, your child's going to have an open wound, and a child with active hepatitis B is also going to have an open wound, or that your child is going to pick up a needle on the beach, which does happen, uh, and it's going to have live hepatitis virus. It's, it's, it's postulating a sequence of events which is very, very, very improbable. But as a public health measure, uh, there's, it, it works. Is there a known downside to the vaccine itself? Are there side effects to it? Small. Small. Basically risk-free. That needle scenario actually is not impossible. My daughter I, and her friend, whose father is a physician, picked up a needle on the bus one day and started playing with the tip going, ooh, that's so sharp. Sure. I had, I've had that happen also. Yes. I've seen people, uh, I've, I've read stories about needles in the uh, movie theater. But right, as far as the risk, the, the, the problem that I have with my point of view about vaccines is that I, I look at case reports uh, I look at what I wouldn't consider to be obscure journals, a journal of neurology and so on, and they show that obviously every time that we do something, whether it's a hepatitis B vaccine or give you acetaminophen, there's a small risk involved. Now, the risk involved in, in giving the hepatitis B vaccine is probably not 1%. I mean, that would be a tremendous overstatement to say a 1% risk of uh, some disease occurring after the vaccine. But there's a risk involved every time we do something. And I, I, would exp I would explain to parents, as I know you do, that the risk involved in giving that vaccine is zero to none. Minuscule. But then they, the question that they ask is, what's the benefit? So, I mean, from the way you both described it, it sounds to me, I'm just processing, maybe you can weigh in, Maria, also. It sounds to me like you're saying pretty much zero risk, pretty much zero benefit for the individual child. I don't know about zero benefit because the people who are at risk for hepatitis B are not people necessarily who do a lot of preventative think ahead kind of planning. So at risk at what point in their life? As adolescents. But I'm just talking about you said we give it at the hospital before they even we leave do. the hospital. So at that moment for that child, for for the individual child, 
it seems to me like there's almost no risk and almost no benefit at that time. If if you're projecting later, if the you know if we don't get them now, they they may be at risk later. They uh, may. I feel there's a there's an issue of capture because the healthy kids don't necessarily come back. I have plenty of kids who see me all the time, and then all of a sudden I'll get a notice from the minute clinic that they went there for their annual exam mm-hmm. on a Tuesday at three o'clock. We're open. But you're, you're talking about a specific class of, of patient, but there's certainly another class of patient who's very on top of their health care and, and for them who would be tracking it and, uh, and would vaccinate later. It doesn't seem like there's a risk in waiting for them. You're waiting. saying there's no urgency for the vaccine. There's no urgency to give the vaccine before you leave the hospital for that group of people. But so in 1981, when the vaccine was developed and we couldn't get the high risk patients to line up for the vaccine. Yes. Because they didn't want to come forward and say, yeah, that's me. I'm the IV drug abuser. I'm the person who's having unprotected sex. So how is it when you look at the statistics that the disease incidence only went down when we started to vaccinate infants? But I'm, I'm again just talking about that individual child. That's the, that's the problem because it, it, we're, ne- neither of us disagree that from a public health point of view, this exactly. is decreasing incidence of hepatitis Absolutely. B. Absolutely, it's the so only thing that's worked. So if we change back and if we said that well there, there'll be no more hepatitis B vaccines given at birth, chances are very good the incidence of hepatitis B is going to rise. Yes. People will be in danger. There'll be deadly yes. cases of hepatitis B. No question. Yes. But the question but the that I get asked: the child's on a continuum. Asked, it's not. It doesn't have to do with right that second. All the vaccines are preventative. You want to get the protection in before they become a promiscuous right, but, I mean, teenager. As I think we go down the list, we'll see that children are at greater risk as infants for some of these diseases than for hepatitis B. And and I'm not... But it's not zero risk for hepatitis B as an infant. Zero risk. It's not zero risk, and there's the, not zero risk to contract, to contract hepatitis B. There's not zero risk from taking the vaccine. Well, you know, I, I would, I would just to make it to make it a little bit personal between because between the two of us, we have children, and you have more than I certainly. But for our individual children, the risk of contracting hepatitis B was zero. I don't know. My daughter was playing with a needle on the bus. Uh, but if she had been. Expo- okay. as, a, as a newborn. But as a newborn, as a newborn. As a newborn. In other words, if someone said, well, I really don't like that vaccine, I'd like to wait till he's a year old. As a newborn, I, and when she was a newborn, I was a resident. I was working 100 hours a week. I had a nanny who I trusted with her, but if they went to the park and she found something and touched it, I don't know. Like not a newborn, a toddler. But it's toddler. not. I don't believe the risk is zero. But for the newborn with parents that know they don't have, a, have the disease... Uh, I'm going to go out and say the risk of almost anything is not zero. Right. Everything has some risk involved in it. But if it's very close to zero, it seems like from an individual per- child perspective, their parents might choose to wait and not really be taking an unreasonable risk for that child. I'm not downplaying the the potential benefit to society. I'm just saying I like to look at it from both sides. Yes. What, what is best for my individual child and then social responsibility after that or even individual responsibility maybe i'm safe for three months or six months or nine months but then my kid goes to the park and plays with a needle i might be at risk at that point we are going to take a quick commercial break don't go anywhere we'll be right back Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient needed, the supplement brand I trust created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. 
Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. And we can even delineate the choice of having it at the hospital when the baby's a newborn and delaying it to their first appointment, for example, when they're a few weeks old. I mean, so there are differences between doing it as a newborn and, and 10 years old. Yeah. And you can also, if there is a choice, you can also choose to to not have it at the hospital and wait uh, for a time that your healthcare provider deems okay. So that that we knew going into the hospital, we didn't want our our firstborn who was born at the hospital, the second was not, to to have it. And so we didn't know how long at the time. I had done some research, but we knew for sure as a newborn that we did not want her to have that. And I think that's what I hear from a lot of our patients is that um, they, many of them would do, would, would administer these vaccines, but they're a little nervous because it just seems so much right up at the beginning, which is, uh, you know, we'll talk about resources later, but I think that's where Dr. Sears, Bob Sears' book came in. And I'm so glad you mentioned oh, that because that. I have a quote from Dr. Sears' oh. book about this particular vaccine. Perfect. It's so like about hepatitis B vaccine, Dr. Sears says, quote, this is an important vaccine from a public health standpoint, but it's not as critical from an individual point of view. That's the end of the quote. Explain to me who makes up the public, if not the individual's. How can how can that be? I, do, I don't see how that works. You're questioning his quote? I'm questioning, I agree with the statement that it is, I, I guess I agree with his actual wording that as a, and this is what Dr. Gordon said earlier, as a public health standpoint, getting people immunized fully and early for this vaccine is important because as evidence has shown, it's the only thing that's changed the incidence and made it come down for this particular germ, the hepatitis B. So how can you say this is good for everybody, but not you, ma'am, not you, sir? Well, it, you know, you, if you, just to, to mention another <laughs> quote that I like a lot, um, most vaccines are given at an early age because that's simply when children are most vulnerable to infectious diseases and need the added protection. Although some may call it a one-size-fits-all approach, the recommended vaccine schedule is flexible, and it does account for instances when a child should receive a recommended vaccine or when a recommended vaccine should be delayed. These decisions, however, are best made in consultation with the child's doctor, and parents shouldn't be reluctant to have such discussions. This is not a quote from Bob Sears. This is a quote from Rear Admiral Dr. Ann Shuckett, who is Assistant Attorney General um, and the, uh, the director of the CDC's National Center for Infectious Diseases. And she, in an official CDC memo, said the vaccine schedule should be flexible, which is absolutely anathema to virtually every pediatrician that we know. Now, Ann Shuckett is... You know, one of the biggest of the big. Okay, she's one of the most authoritative physicians in her discussions about vaccines and is uh, not flexible about other things. But this particular vaccine opens up, and you didn't mean to do this right at the very beginning of this discussion. Oh, no, I did not. Doctor, <laughs> but 
it opens up it opens up the whole issue what happens if parents get a vaccine at a time when they either weren't expecting it which i think they should have been we should have told them or they don't feel it's it's the right time for their child but somebody pushes them very hard i think we're liable to to lose some of our credibility in our discussions of other vaccines other healthcare issues but certainly other vaccines and I, that, that's one of the reasons that, that I, 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 if somebody really wants a hepatitis B vaccination at birth, that, that's fine with me because I don't think that there's a great risk to that vaccine. I don't think risks are intrinsic to each and every individual vaccine. I don't like the schedule at all, not at all, but I don't, I, I think that overstating the risk of that vaccine uh, my pulling out and cherry-picking little references, the journal Neurology showing an increased incidence of multiple sclerosis after the hepatitis B vaccine. How much? 1%? No. 0.01%? A lot closer. Okay, so trying to scare people out of getting that vaccine is really, I think, incorrect and, and a little bit unethical. But trying to scare them into getting the vaccine is the same. I think it should be presented to them. And instead, the vaccine schedule is presented by most pediatricians as if it's etched in stone. Yeah. And I, 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 think that we, I think we lose people when we do that. I, from, from my conversations daily with our patients, most of whom are not very pro or very anti-vaccine, but looking for information, they want to be a part of the decision-making. They want to have research. They want to know what the risks are to their child and what the benefits are to their child first, and then also understand the public health uh, issue second. Um, so I think they're both important to them. But if you tell them sometimes that even though there is no clear benefit to your child in getting this vaccine, now we we are going to make you do it anyway. They they run away from that. They don't I've want never, to. I would never vaccinate without a, par- a parent's consent. Absolutely well, not. The state of California just uh, decided to. But you know, <clears throat> and I disagree with that too. I think the statement was that they can't attend public school. They pretty much can't can attend, attend school, any school. private school, public okay. school, daycare. Well, then the parents are faced with a choice. It's yeah, not. Well, if you don't consider that forcing them to vaccinate, I mean, it's a pretty hefty choice. It's real hot here now. It's real hot here now because Most, uh, the, the, no matter. I mean, Elliot, you. I believe you even misspoke yourself a little bit at the beginning when you talked about both sides of the issue. It's not. There's not both. There, as you know, there aren't two sides of the issue. There are those of us who get vaccines, give vaccines every day. You know, before I left for Nepal, I got a hepatitis A vaccine and a typhoid vaccine. I still not clear why I got those. You look great. Thank you very much. I survived them. Uh, uh, but but there are those of us who just would like to to do this differently, and who I don't believe in coercion. I believe in if you if I got a product to sell you, I better be able to present the facts and convince you that this product is worth buying because we're not giving these things away we're selling them the product is worth buying and that the risks outweigh the benefits and i think that if if you give parents this this stone wall because if you want your child to attend school period private again right from daycare you now have to get vaccine full vaccination in the state of california and it was it was misguided it was misguided. I it think it takes that, away the right to public education, any kind of education, um, in a group setting. But we but, just started but, talking about one vaccine. But we've we're, got we're, twenty we're more go vaccines list, to talk about. I'm just about. saying that that is. I think most people would consider that being strong-armed into vaccinating, um, not being really given a choice of vaccine. Um, and I, we will talk about that heavily at the end. 
Okay. I'm going to jump over to the next vaccine on my list, which is rotavirus. And uh, in, well, I think we can move through them at a, at a pretty quick pace. <laughs> if, but This I, doesn't move quickly and you know it. Well, moderate. Um, what I'm looking for is really um, what I'd love to do is have an analysis of what is this disease? What would happen if you got it? What is the vaccine like? Are there any minuses to not getting it or to getting it at a certain time as an individual and then as a society and then save the debate for you know individual choice versus societal responsibility for the end and we can talk about all the vaccines in that arena as well rotavirus is one of the nastiest viral diarrheas that a baby or child or an adult can get Uh, the vaccine and we now have uh, I believe we're now on our, our second and third iterations of the vaccine, probably a lot more than that. It's a vaccine that would save hundreds of thousands of lives in Africa, certain parts of Asia. Unfortunately, the cost of the vaccine, I believe, exceeds the per capita income in Somalia, so you, the annual income. So the vaccine isn't making it to where it belongs. Instead, it's been given to American breastfed children leading to one of the worst recommendations I've ever seen regarding vaccines, which is that mothers should withhold breastfeeding for a period of time surrounding the rotavirus vaccine, which endangers a child more. Uh, the vaccine is is okay. Again, it's a vaccine with, with very little benefit for American children, in my point of view, but it's, it's not a, a dangerous vaccine. Um, it was written up uh, it's been written up for years and years and years as increasing the incidence of intussusception, which is a dangerous obstruction in uh, in babies. But most of the medical of the literature, digestive system, yeah, yeah excuse me, a, a blockage in the intestinal system, uh, intestinal tract rather. But most of the, most experts uh, feel that that. It doesn't increase the incidence of intussusception. If it does, it's a minuscule amount and that the vaccine is worth it. Uh, I disagree. Thoughts? Uh, As recently as uh, a decade and a half ago when I was doing my residency at the Cleveland Clinic from October, November until April, you could smell the rotavirus when you came to work. There was a whole wing in the baby section of the inpatient hospital that just reeked. The poop smells like vomit. The vomit smells like poop. It's two weeks of fever and just leaking from everywhere. That's a poetic statement about rotavirus. That's really great. It was disgusting. I'm sorry to use clinical terms. It was nasty. Um, (laughs) It was just nasty. And, you know, as the residents, we all got it too because you come anywhere near a kid with rotavirus and you're going to get rotavirus. I was actually comforting a family in my office once. The dad was cradling his three-year-old in his arms. And I said, where's the rest of you guys? And the mom's in the emergency room because she and the nine-year-old both needed to go from dehydration. And I said, I'm like stroking the child's hair and I feel something. I'm like, oh, what you got in there? And the dad's like, probably my puke. I'm like, wow, this is really disgusting. <laughs> Sorry to revisit the word. But yeah, so I think rotavirus. last time you said nasty. It was nasty. Yeah. Um, rotavirus is brutal. It is virulent if you like I said, you come near it, you catch it. It spreads like wildfire through daycares, through households, through wherever you go. Um, in the when you were saying the different iterations of the vaccine, Dr. Gordon, it's true. The previous, not the current Rotatec vaccine, but previous versions of the vaccine were withdrawn because in post-marketing studies, they did see even that minuscule risk, and it's just not worth it. So they came up with a different version of it. There's no, um, you know, immediate 
pain to the child because it's an oral vaccine and they eat it up. They are happy to have it because it's delicious. And the <laughs> the opposite of nasty. The the last case of rotavirus that I've seen was three years ago and it was in a child who had older teenage siblings. And with this child, the mom heard something on Oprah and decided she didn't want any vaccines for the child. She told me that was her rationale because Oprah said, and so she refused the rotavirus vaccine. And this child got so sick. She had acute kidney injury. She was in the hospital for two weeks. She got so dehydrated. She was, she was really, really sick as dirt. And it's a shame because it was entirely preventable with something that caused her no pain, no, no harm. By what mechanism does rotavirus spread? Fecal oral. It is um, unwashed hands from in a daycare or in a family where mom or the caregiver, anyone has been changing a diaper or someone in a restaurant hasn't washed their hands after returning from the restroom and then they handle the food or somehow that it gets into the child's mouth. So, so prevented by good hand washing technique. Absolutely. Which I would love to see go go viral. <laughs> <laughs> so so again, it, it it seems like in certain in certain environments, their kids are at much greater risk than in other environments. If you eat in a restaurant, um, because even if your infant eats in is, a restaurant, if the adult or the baby, yes, well, but even if the parent is the one eating in the restaurant and the child is too young to eat food. Um, Still, it can come into the house that way, and then the child is absolutely at risk. Even if the parents are good with hand washing. It's explosive diarrhea. Mm. Um, and then what about, uh, Dr. Gordon, you mentioned uh, the recommendation to hold off on breastfeeding. There was, a, again, an ill-advised recommendation to be careful about breast milk killing the rotavirus vaccine. And it was... It was uh, if it hasn't been completely withdrawn, it, it it certainly is being ignored by any good doctor. You don't you don't stop a mother from breastfeeding because of a vaccine. You don't interrupt it for an hour because of a vaccine. That puts a child at greater you guys risk. You seem to be in agreement. Agreed. On, Absolutely on agreed. I never even heard of that. I'm sorry. Oh, it was out that, there. Is um, is rotavirus something that, with enough vaccination from the societal perspective, that will go away? Who well, has a good question? I think Pro it's still yeah. one of those. It's a plane Probably ride not. away. Yeah. Well, I, I saw, I've only seen one serious case of rotavirus. I shouldn't say that. I'm sure I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of serious cases of rotavirus. But I saw it in a nine day old baby. I saw Ooh. a nine day old baby with a fever and um, who looked just like she had meningitis. And she was hospitalized, and the most surprising finding was that the cause of all of this was rotavirus. Now, that's a, that's, a, that's a case that probably couldn't have been prevented no matter what, although I don't know. She might have been in contact with somebody's toddler. I don't, I don't like the vaccine at all. I think that, the, that the, again, whatever incredibly small risk there is um, is not outweighed by the benefit to healthy American children. It's a, a, uh, almost an elitist point of view. I wish that the vaccine would be shipped to where it would do the most good because here, if you get diarrhea, even if you get dehydrated, you get, you get plugged into intravenous fluids and you can be saved. There is still, uh, an est there's an estimate of, of, of fatal cases of, of rotavirus. I'm not sure that I believe that, that it really could cause that much harm to a healthy breastfeeding baby. But so if I can recap and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like if you get rotavirus, if a baby gets rotavirus, it could be uh, both incredibly uncomfortable and also knock them down a bit. Dehydration, um, 
you know, pain and other, other digestive discomfort. Uh, but they are very unlikely to die from rotavirus in the U S um, yeah, in the U S and especially it sounds like if they're breastfed and also, uh, living, you know, at home rather than going into a daycare situation. Right. But that the current version of the vaccine doesn't really seem to have, um, any particular uh, significant side effects. Agreed. I feel it's safe. Uh, that's exactly the way I feel. It's not a dangerous vaccine. Just in terms of rotavirus, is, is it just babies who are susceptible to it? Or it's to not? the germ? Don't oh, they, no. Oh, no. But don't no. they stop it's medical anyone who too. comes into contact with them? But it's if you medical, didn't yeah. receive it by the age of six months, from what I've heard, you don't need to get it after the age of six months. Uh, the rotavirus vaccine? The vaccine. I don't, yeah, I don't know when, I don't, That's there's what, a point where we do stop giving it, and I can't tell you exactly when it is, but the reason it's given so early, as, as, uh, as the CDC's Dr. Shuckert said, is, is that kids are, are vulnerable to these diseases it's early. And the, early. the reason that people give, the reason that, 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 that there is such dislike and disdain for delayed vaccine schedules is that admittedly, the, uh, there's no child at higher risk from contracting pertussis than a child in those first two or three or four months of life. There's no child at higher risk uh, for, to injury from rotavirus than that, that very young child. But my thought is that the risk is overstated and that we're coercing people too much. Maria, I think you're right about the six months. I know that if a baby comes late for their six-month visit, we don't give that third rotavirus dose I always thought it was because insurance wouldn't pay for it because it was outside the recommended time frame. Let's move on to diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. It's a triple <laughs> triple vaccine. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's DTAP and Tdap for one thing that's a little confusing. <clears throat> uh, but if we can talk about each of the three childhood illnesses that we are trying to protect children against, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. First of all, why are they together? They like each other. They behave well? They do. They do. As a vaccine? They do. Indeed, they do. The diphtheria why are they and together? Well, even when you give the DT booster for kids over seven, um, when you don't need the pertussis, if it's if it's a different situation, then uh, the uh, then the diphtheria and the tetanus are together. I think the diphtheria doesn't take without the tetanus. The diph- diphtheria went in a long time ago. I mean, I was, I was, I, I saw one of the last cases of diphtheria in America at Children's Hospital in the late seventies. At uh, one of the the boat people, remember the boat people in the late seventies, coming across from some part of Asia. You don't remember? It was, uh, uh, <laughs> it was before you I were born. I forgot. I forgot before <laughs> it was before you were born, and it was it, it, it was there was no humor because it ended up being a fatal case of diphtheria. The, the child oh. did not get the antitoxin in time. Um, but the diphtheria goes along for the ride. I believe that it, it is it it is supposed to kickstart the immune system to cause the immune system to react more strongly to the tetanus and whooping cough components of the vaccine. What is diphtheria? What is the disease? It is a bacterial illness which creates a, a web in the back of the throat, an obstruction, uh, inflammation in the back of the throat. It's a, a tonsillitis from hell, and it can, it, uh, it can then progress from there to attack the heart. Oh. And unless the, the disease is neutralized, uh, that is a, the cause of death. How does it spread? It's a person-to-person contact. It's it's a disease that's pretty much gone from the entire planet, but there are still little outbreaks. 
We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. It requires a pretty serious breakdown in in healthcare and and healthcare infrastructure and uh, hygiene in order for it to spread. We don't have a lot of outbreaks. I'm not even familiar with the, the the latest outbreak, and I know there has been one in the past few years. Is it treatable if you recognize that you there's an an, there's an antitoxin? It, there's there's a after the fact after the fact you can neutralize the the um, bacterial toxin. I always wonder with things that are on their way out like this, and we have younger doctors come in, um, are they even able to diagnose these diseases that they've never seen? Oh, diphtheria has to be just the worst exudate in the back. I mean, I've seen pictures, I've researched for vaccine talks before, and I've never seen a case, and I hope to never see a case. You never will see a case. But it's still part of the vaccine. We can't change that vaccine because in order to change that vaccine, they would have to go through a, a billion dollars worth of trials. of trials to get a brand new pertussis so, tetanus vaccine. So diphtheria pretty much is in there. Goes along for the ride. To help the other two yes. be more effective. Um, tetanus is uh, is from the soil. Is that true? Am I making that up? It's an anaerobic bacteria. Oxygen kills it. So classically, you find it in the garden. Where there's there's no oxygen, you can find it in the the center of a piece of of horse manure because there's no oxygen, and the classic infection is an, a nail puncture, where a a, a nail uh, enters the foot, creates a, a deep wound. The nail was contaminated with uh, uh, Clostridium tetani, and it plants that bacteria, and the, and then the the that puncture wound closes quickly, and you now have an inoculum of tetanus in an oxygen-free environment. Your body. It's an extremely rare illness in America. In America, It is not a rare illness in the third world. Why is it rare here? Because we vaccinate. We have, we've got an extremely high vaccination rate against tetanus. Um, Would it otherwise, other, but it, it doesn't spread from person to person. Right, it doesn't. It doesn't. But, so but, wound, but wounds are very common. I mean, the, the children, children uh, and adults get get unusual wounds often. I mean, perhaps not as often in my office as you might see uh, when people are working on a farm. But virtually everybody has a tetanus. Shot. Are you saying that if you have a wound and I have a wound and we're both not vaccinated? No, no. You're not saying that. You're just saying mm-hmm. wounds are common, so the tetanus coming out of where it's soil or the nail or wherever it is. You keep opening up an interesting controversy. What's that? The 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 state law in California, the new one, and state laws elsewhere mandating vaccines against um, transmissible illnesses includes tetanus, which, as you've just mentioned, is not well because it's bundled with pertussis, which is right. But it's but it but it but it's specifically listed in the California state law, and I'll bet it's listed in New York state law and others they, that that you have to have tetanus immunity before you go to school. Because what I've always wanted, I would I would love separate vaccines it's been a long time since the university of michigan uh uh, stopped making they had a single pertussis vaccine for a long time it was a whole cell pertussis vaccine which is a a topic for some other point i guess perhaps this evening but they made a a p not a dpt or a tdp or anything else just a p just a p and uh 
it was it was fairly useful because there were people who had had all their tetanus shots, didn't need another tetanus shot for five or ten years, but they wanted more whooping cough immunity. But they stopped manufacturing that vaccine. I'd love to see them start making a pertussis vaccine again. Just theoretically, uh, if there was a tetanus vaccine by itself, right? Tetanus vaccine. Tetanus. There is. There is tetanus by itself. I had but there's tetanus when I was a teenager. Oh, you're saying there's no pertussis by itself. Right, there's no pertussis so you, by itself. So in order to get pertussis, you have to get tetanus. Right, and the tetanus vaccine, by the way, the, the, the single pertussis, the, the tetanus vaccine is one of the few places where you can still get a, a good dose of, of mercury, of thimerosal. It's one of the few vaccines that still has mercury, a mercury-containing preservative. A tetanus by itself vaccine, which you, not which you can, Yeah, which most doctors don't carry in their offices. If you find that in the emergency room. So if if I um, if I'm exposed to tetanus, can I treat that after the fact? Yes. Sure can. You can get what's called a tetanus immune globulin, hypertet. Because you can't wait for the antibodies to be formed in response to a vaccine because you've been, you may have been exposed to tetanus. So you get an injection of a, a gamma globulin and, and a tetanus shot. And you, uh, it's, I, don't, I don't know if it's 100% effective. I don't it's know if it's, it's very, very effective. Okay, so but it's also pretty inconvenient so, so, to bring your child in. <laughs> so far, but you in also this... have to be aware that you've gotten a dirty wound and that you're at risk and you have to be able to get to a healthcare facility that stocks. How much time do you have? How much time do you have? 72 hours, I think, is what people say. 72 hours. I don't know if that's, I don't know where, I don't know if somebody made that number up or if it's a real number. Uh, I wouldn't want to test it. Um, <laughs> but there is, te- there is, but it just seems right now we have DTAP, which is a trio of, uh, a trio vaccine. You get three things in there. Diphtheria is just to make the other ones more effective. Tetanus, you could potentially treat after the fact. And then there's, pertussis which is why I, I assume most people are getting this vaccine what is pertussis pertussis is mean pertussis is a very aggressive prolonged cough it's nicknamed the hundred day cough even it's a bacterial illness and even if you get treated you can still have symptoms for months i had pertussis i would not wish it on my worst enemy when did you have it when did i have it as a resident oh you so were you not well, vaccinated but you were fully vaccinated. I was. It's not a perfect vaccine. So you had a 100-day cough? I had. They were teasing me that they thought I had tuberculosis. Um, yes, it is. It's just this horrible cough. And just coughing, coughing. A lot of my patients, if they get symptoms of cough until they pass out or cough until they throw up, I start to think about pertussis. It's this terrible, choking, awful. Um, my husband teased me. He like spit on his hand and, and made like a catcher. He, I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to catch your lungs <laughs> because it just sounded <laughs> like I was going to cough them out. It was horrible. Is it uh, life-threatening? It can be. For adults it can and be. children? For right. children, it's worse. For little babies who don't have the musculature and the wherewithal in their thorax and their chest cavity to really produce a cough, they suffocate when they get this. There is available on YouTube videos of babies with pertussis, and it's heart-wrenching to watch them gasp and, and, and just beg for air, and they can't get it in. Do we, um, do we, va- is, it's a bacteria? Uh, it is. So do we vaccinate the baby or do yes, we vaccinate the parents? Well, interestingly, they say that about 80% of the time when babies get pertussis is from a household contact, either an adult whose immunity has waned or a teenager who hasn't gotten there. This is why the DTAP was made into a, a, a vaccine called Adacel, which is for teenagers, because the, the immunity wanes. 
And the problem that that vaccine has created, and it was discovered after the fact, was that even if you get, you know, grandparents are supposed to be vaccinated to protect the new grandchild, and parents are supposed to get the vaccine, and mothers are supposed to get vaccinated while they're pregnant uh, to protect the baby, to cocoon the baby. But what they discovered was that that adults and children who had received the pertussis vaccine, whether it was the the adult or the childhood version, did not get whooping cough when exposed, but carried it at exactly the same rate. So in some ways that makes them a little more dangerous because if the grandfather is coughing and overtly ill, you're going to keep him away from the baby. But if he's had the Adacel vaccine, which I think is a, it's a brand name, it's a kind of advertising here. If, he's, if the, the grandfather's had the Adacel and he's exposed to whooping cough, he won't get whooping cough, but he could carry whooping cough. Now, the solution, again, is, is a lot of hand washing, except you can have what's known as nasal carriage of, of pertussis. So we got a real problem with whooping cough. Again, Just describe what that is. Where you're actually you're carrying you're carrying the 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 the, the bacteria in your nose or, or in your nose. And so if if I sneeze, I can give it to somebody. You could else? give it. You could give it to the baby. Okay. Um, we, we we with the vaccines that we have now, the acellular vaccine, the latest and greatest vaccines, we will not only never eradicate whooping cough, we'll never come close to eradicating whooping cough. I mean, you you're probably very familiar with the history. We had a whole cell vaccine. It was called the DPT. What it was was a vaccine with two or 3,000 antigens. We sort of just chopped up the bacteria and injected it into your child, and it worked great. It produced a high level of antibodies. It also, unfortunately, produced seizures and brain damage and death in a, a, percent, a small percentage of babies. So the vaccine became very much unacceptable because it deterred people from getting other vaccines. I mean, they extrapolated this, this, this horrible side effect from the DPT, and they decided they didn't want any vaccines. So we replaced that vaccine with an acellular vaccine, which I believe has not two or 3,000, but three or four antigens. So we now have a very wimpy whooping cough vaccine, which wears off, immunity wanes over two to four years. So we have a whole bunch of people who've had the full complement of vaccinations who two or three or four years later are no longer immune, are capable of catching the disease, carrying the disease. So we need a new vaccine. And one of the reasons that we're not getting a new vaccine, why there's not a lot of money being spent on on, a, on developing a good flu vaccine or a good pertussis vaccine, is that we tell people we got a really good vaccine. And the real experts, the real ethical experts, uh, have said we've got to stop telling people what a good flu shot we have. We've got to stop telling people that we have a really good whooping cough vaccine. We got a flu shot and we got a whooping cough vaccine, but they're not good enough. How long have we had the current vaccine? The acellular vaccine? Oh, it's been around for for a few decades. I mean, it was used in Germany and Japan before it made it over here. It was used for 10 years in Germany and Japan before it made it to America. But it it we started using that. It was it is it 99 uh, that we started using the acellular, you know? The original was from the 1940s. Yeah, it it's it it's well, the acellular vaccine's been around for 15 years anyway. Maybe longer. Do you um Dr. Wilbur, does does uh Dr. Gordon mention something that's whirling through my mind uh when it comes to giving the pertussis vaccine which would be part of the trio of vaccines to the parents uh, and grandparents uh does that do you agree with that that it, it um it could prevent them from being symptomatic but still be carriers with it is there a concern there 
My understanding of nasal carriage is that the bacterial load or the viral load of the germ that you're carrying is not heavy enough to be an infection. It is a colonization. And while, yes, that's an issue we see from methicillin-resistant staph aureus that families can carry it, and certainly given an opportunity, it will show it's evil. Um, but I do recommend that um, the pertussis protection for that exact cocooning effect for my patients. You're recommending that the people around them get it to protect them. I do. And your feeling is that even though they may still carry it, they will not likely carry it in levels that will transmit it to the baby. Well, this is again like that hand washing discussion. I mean, please don't sneeze directly on the baby. Sometimes, turn, turn if you can. Absolutely, no it can't be avoided, yeah. and that's why you have to make sure that the baby's as protected as possible, too. And um, when it comes to the pertussis, well, the D, what's the difference between DTAP and DTAP? The DTAP um, is a big D, big T, little A, big P. So right. it's a decent dose of, di of the diphtheria, tetanus, and an acellular, that's the A, ah, pertussis. Okay. That's the DTAP. The Tdap is a big T, a little baby D. It's just a whiff of, of diphtheria to make it work. And then the big P, also acellular. But who gets which one? The teenagers don't need as much diphtheria protection. Oh, that's protection. the one we were talking so about the, before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are there downsides to the Dtap? It's a little P. Little P. A little P. For, I'm so sorry. Do, oh, Go for it. Tdap. So it's a... It's they, a they reduce... The, 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 pertussis, the pertussis component is reduced, uh, antigenically reduced also, because that's a... The, the you know the the reason that we couldn't give the 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 tdap the d the reason we couldn't give the dtap okay d t big d big t big p over age six was that there were more side effects and they were not severe side or they were you know I guess that's a parent's point of view they the doctor's point of view and a parent's point of view might be otherwise there were more swollen legs more more painful uh, muscle sequelae. And and there were more kids who had fevers. The older that you got, they, they, when we tried giving that to older kids, they just had reactions that were unacceptable. So we stopped at age six, which which created a problem because we know that seven, eight, nine, ten year old kids, if you want to be, if you want them to be protected against whooping cough and whooping cough outbreaks, they need vaccines. We didn't have one, so they invented a vaccine to try to fill that gap. The uh, the Adacel, the one with a, a smaller diphtheria component, a smaller pertussis component, um, and and but we still have that few year gap where there's there's we we have waning immunity, and we just don't have it right. We just don't have it right. We we have. We had after the introduction of the of uh, of some of the newer vaccines, we we actually had years where we had more pertussis than before, and the reason is we've got a, a wimpy vaccine. It just it really needs to be replaced. And, and that uh, weakened one is that the same one we give to adults? Yeah, it's it's weakened from the old DPT, which was just a. a, a, a not a, it was a, again a vaccine that was unacceptable because of the side effects. Okay, but, but a very good vaccine in terms of immunity, not dissimilar to the the discussion of the oral polio vaccine, a vaccine that that worked great but had unacceptable, statistically unacceptable side effects. Are there um, side effects or risks that are commonly associated with the current DTAP or DTAP? You ever get it? You remember getting your last tetanus shot? Most people do. It hurts. Oh, it's painful. Mm -hmm. It hurts. Other than that, very, no, very few side effects. I mean, that's 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 how. 
I can sell that vaccine with a clear conscience. I can say, look, getting it, getting the, the, the DTAP or the TDAP will give you very few side effects, or put it this way, commonly, uh, conventionally acknowledged side effects. I rarely see a fever. I've never seen a convulsion after that vaccine. Uh, but, but the thing that makes me a little bit embarrassed about selling that vaccine is to have to tell people that it's, it's probably not much more than 80 some percent effective and it, the immunity wanes probably in three years. And you'd rather give them just a pee if they only I'd rather a have a, a, a the rather, option. I just need, we need a new vaccine. We, you know, again, we went from two or 3000 antigens down to three or four antigens. You can, you can see that the immune system is going to respond completely differently. And now another, again, interesting sidebar is that we have a serious percentage of, of pertussis bacteria, I believe it's up to 20%, that are what's known as, as pertactin negative. They are eluding the vaccine. The vaccine's not effective on them. The vaccine is, is not effective against a, a significant percentage of whooping cough. So, which is why you were fully vaccinated and... Uh, got sick anyway. Got sick yeah, anyway. which may have been more, more due to the fact that immunity wanes, wanes and you can't get that vaccine every year. You know, you, uh, although there are some people who are recommending a, a, an Adacel booster every year. Do you see, Dr. Wilbur, the benefit of having just a pee? I suppose. This is what happened with the MMR when it got picked apart. Um, and they don't make individual measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines anymore. The problem is it's hard enough. I mean, in, in your beginning in introduction, you were talking about the numbers of vaccines, the numbers of shots, the numbers of diseases, if it's difficult to convince a parent that you need to get, you know, a certain number of DTAPs, if they're split up into different ones, then we have the discussion. Do we really need the diphtheria? I mean, but I isn't that the discussion it's, that they want to be having? I mean, yes. Yes. It they is. want to make choices for each individual disease, each individual vaccine and each individual child. And with that, let's take a break to absorb all this information. I invite our guests, Dr. Wilbur and Dr. Gordon, and our listeners to join us for part two of the Facts About the Vax on the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Berlin. Please visit informedpregnancy.com for show notes with valuable information, references, and resources pertaining to this podcast. And as always, write to info at informedpregnancy.com with questions or comments. I got a whole lot of questions for you. 